The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, uh, and we are finding some really interesting things to write about and talk about these days as uh, it there is a, a growing belief that the gold markets are turning around, and so a lot of the companies that I'm looking at uh, offer tremendous upside uh, potential, in my view, and I think uh, you will also find that to be true with uh, some of our guests today as well. Uh, I'm also in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying and What is Chen Selling? And if you're interested in subscribing to Chen, you do need to go to, uh, uh, to miningstocks.com miningstocks.com, put your name on a waiting list, and from there, then uh, at the beginning of the next quarter, Chen will be accepting new subscribers. My newsletter is available at any time, uh, and you can access that as well at miningstocks.com, or you can go to jtaylormedia.com, that's j-a-y-taylormedia.com, to uh, sign up for my letter uh, or Chen's letter. You can go through there to miningstocks.com. You can also follow me on Twitter under the handle jtaylormedia. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. We also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Nanostruck Technologies, uh, Brazil Resources, and Metanor Resources. Uh, Nanostruck is selling at a mere eight cents today. Uh, story there is a, a company that has a technology that can clean uh, wastewater into potable water. Uh, Brazil Resources, a lot of good news coming out for that company, selling at $0.68, cents, uh, a very uh, substantial uh, newly acquired property with about three-quarters of a million ounces of gold on it in Brazil. A well-funded company, a company with good deep pockets behind it. Brazil Resources, BRI, will be talking to the CEO of that company sometime in the near future. And Metanor Resources, uh, also a sponsor. Uh, shares have risen very nicely uh, percentage-wise over the last couple of weeks. It's uh, now selling at $0.18. Cents. Uh, we'll be talking a little later today to uh, uh, to a member uh, of the management of that company. Well, let's get uh, down to today's show. I've titled today's show, Profiting in Gold Markets Controlled by Criminals. 
Well, that sounds a, a little bit uh, alarming, perhaps. So we have markets in the United States that are controlled by criminals? Well, heaven forbid, no. Well, who are the criminals that I'm talking about? Even more alarming, they are none other than the federal government itself and the Federal Reserve Bank and its shareholders, namely the major money center banks that were bailed out in 2008 and 2009. I believe that something has gone terribly wrong with a system that rewards thieves and punishes those who work hard and play by the rules and live within their means. But clearly that is what both Democrats and Republicans have fostered under the laws that they've passed uh, in our country over the last number of decades. Criminal behavior has now taken over the country, uh, and the criminals have made the laws that that are now allowing the military-industrial complex and the bankers to parasitically devour a nation. There's no doubt about that in my mind. The ruling elite, which are comprised of Harvard, Princeton, and Yale PhDs, would hardly seem like criminals or like enemies of the people on the face of it, but many of them are, and like a good, any good con system, these folks have convinced most Americans that they are actually looking out for their welfare, that they should be trusted to take care of the masses. Well, that is exactly the opposite of what is, in fact, happening. The masses are not being taken care of. The middle class is being devoured. But the reality, uh, that really seems to be the reality of what is going on uh, today. But none of that would surprise our guest today, starting with J. Michael Oliver, He'll be with me in about a half an hour. Uh, he's going to talk about his book, The New Liber- uh, Libertarianism, Anarcho-Capitalism. Now, like our founding fathers, Michael knows that rather than being our friend, if government becomes too powerful, it becomes our number one enemy. And that, in my humble opinion, is what is really very rapidly happening in America now. Our own government is now becoming our, our biggest enemy uh, because as Jimmy Carter, even a former president of the United States, recently acknowledged, the United States does not currently have a working democracy. In other words, we have taxation without any representation. Michael's book is, uh, is very easy to understand. It's an explanation of the logic behind Ayn Rand's objectivism. And what that philosophy highlights um, is the importance of each of us to be free to use our own unique skills to earn a living and survive and to thrive and free of government tyranny. But in addition to Michael's understanding of free markets and liberty, he is also one of the top technical analysts in the country. So we will uh, want to be asking him about his views on the stock market, the bond market, the precious metals markets, and time permitting, hopefully also perhaps on some other markets like natural gas and uranium, which I, I think are also very interesting markets right now. In the second hour of today's show, once again, uh, I will be talking to Dan Oliver, who manages a gold share-orientated hedge fund out of his office in New York City. Dan is very convinced and will talk about the evidence of gold market manipulation, once again, by the same criminals who own and control our government and who manipulate other markets like the LIBOR markets. Although he is convinced that the gold markets are manipulated, as I am, also convinced of that, Daniel is also believes that... Uh, or I should say Dan Oliver believes that the gold price is about to get away from the manipulators and rocket ultimately to thousands of dollars an ounce. Given that view, he has turned exceedingly bullish on gold shares, and and he thinks the time is almost at hand for what Bill Lagner uh, noted on our show will be uh, a monster year, 2014, for the gold share markets. Regarding the gold shares, Dan is most convinced that those companies now on the cusp of producing profits, but not quite there yet, 
will offer the biggest bang for your buck as the gold markets turn positive. To listen to Dan's interview today, uh, you are going to need to go to jtaylormedia, that's J-A-Y-T-A-Y-L-O-R-Media.com, and that will be uh, starting at 4 o'clock p.m. Eastern time in New York today. Now, I'm not sure if Dan owns Metanor Resources, but there is one that is, I think, one company that sort of fits the what Dan is looking for in terms of junior mining companies. Metanor is a company that's producing gold, just now going into commercial production in Quebec. Uh, in just a few minutes, I'm going to be talking to Ron Perry of Metanor Resources. Uh, he's going to be talking about that company's progress, uh, both in terms of increasing its bachelor project and also its very it's Berry Project. These are two projects in Quebec. Uh, Bachelor now in production. The stock has moved uh, up percentage-wise quite a bit already from about 12 to 18 cents since we've taken them on as sponsors to this show. In my view, this is the kind of stock that can very easily rise between $1.50 and $2, uh, assuming they execute their business plan and assuming also uh, that we are in a true turn in the, uh, in the markets um, for, for gold. Finally, in the second hour of today's show, I'm going to be talking to Daniel McAdams. Again, you need to go to jtaylormedia.com, J-A-Y-T-A-Y-L-O-R-Media.com. Daniel McAdams heads up the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. He'll be with me to talk uh, also about uh, the the lies that the same criminals are committing uh, to cause the United States to be perpetually at war in the Middle East and around the world. There is big money in killing people. That's what President Eisenhower warned us about, the military-industrial complex. Well, now it's the American empire. It's no longer the United States of America. It's the American empire. Behind the American empire are powerful forces of money uh, that pay little attention or no attention whatsoever other than superficial attention, perhaps, to the Americans, the American voter. Uh, They can manipulate the the mindset of the Americans. They found that out. They're doing it. And what um, the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity does, Daniel's good work helps to do, for those people who care to really be objective and to look at what is really going on, the Ron Paul Institute of Peace and Prosperity helps you to understand and shines the light on the lies that are being given to the American people to convince us that we need to go to war. This is something that the military-industrial complex, uh, it, it, well, that's by its very definition, that's what it's all about. It's about continuing uh, to perpetuate America's power overseas through force, not through uh, any virtues, but just simply by uh, the, vir- well, the virtue of force, I guess if you want to call that a virtue. Oh, and in any event, Daniel will be with us uh, here uh, at J. Taylor Media, J-A-Y Taylor Media, Dot com uh, at approximately 4.30 New York time. You can listen to his latest views, and he'll be talking a little bit about Syria and the latest efforts on the part of the Obama administration uh, to keep us uh, at war uh, or threatening war with Iran. Okay, well, we are going to have to go to break now. And uh, when we come back, uh, Ron Perry uh, of Metanor Resources will be with us again. Um, then later, after uh, Ron Perry, we will be talking to uh, to Michael Oliver, uh, who I think you absolutely need to listen to because Michael has, uh, I think, some very important things to say, both on the philosophical front, but also on the more practical, uh, immediate front to do with the markets. The equity markets, are we very near the end of a, of a major bull market run? Well, there's some reason to believe that could be true. We'll ask Michael about that. What about the gold markets? Are we heading into something uh, akin to what uh, what some of the other guests on this show, uh, Dan Oliver, for example, believes that we have turned the corner, or very likely 
to have turned the corner and that the uh, we're going to see much higher prices for gold and gold shares. Well, we'll, uh, we'll listen to what our guests have to say, and uh, starting with Ron Perry of Metanormal Resources. Don't go away. I'll be right back with Ron. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Attention mining investors. Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil, surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil, led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. As the bull market in gold resumes, gold shares will explode to much higher levels, and those companies that are ramping up production will take off first. Metanor Resources, symbol MTO in Canada and MEAOF in the U.S., is now in commercial production and producing over 4,500 ounces of gold per month from its bachelor mine in Quebec. With seven drills turning, I look for the company's gold resource to grow dramatically on both its bachelor and berry projects. I believe Metanor now offers major upside potential for savvy investors. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm pleased to have with me once again Ron Perry. Ron is the vice president. He is a vice president and treasurer of Metanor Resources, and uh, he has held those positions since March of 2007. Welcome, Ron. It's uh, good to have you back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Hey, thanks for having me. Really good to talk to you again, and it's really good to see the progress that's being made at Metanor Resources. That's a company I've been following for many years. But before we get started, I should mention that Metanor trades on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol MTO and you can buy it in the United States under the symbol M-E-A-O-F and that's where uh, yours truly purchased his shares which I hold in my uh, in my retirement account. There are uh, 267 million shares outstanding. The stock's been trading, I think, around in the 16 to 18 cent range over the last few days. Metanor just recently achieved commercial production at its bachelor project in Quebec and, uh, well, like most mining companies, Metanor has had some difficulties reaching produ- uh, commercial production and I think that fact, along with the general malaise in the gold mining industry has really taken its price down to a level that I find uh, extremely compelling for purchase, and that's why I just recently went out and bought those shares for my own account, and why I'm really uh, suggesting to my readers, as I did last week, that they should also be looking at this. There was uh, This was actually one of three companies that 
I mentioned when I in my talk in Vancouver, uh, new mining companies that are producing, that are actually starting to produce, that the market is absolutely trashed for no fault of their own. The companies are doing well now, and Metanor is one. It's got, as I mentioned, it's in commercial production. It's starting to produce, and I think the best days are ahead of it, and yet the market, I think, hasn't paid very much attention to it, and that's why I really like it as a, as a potential moonshot. Well, uh, Ron, your flagship property is the Bachelor Mine, which was a former producer. Where is it located? It's located in uh, Demerville, which is about two and a half hour drive north of Valdor in the prolific uh, B Greenstone Belt. And uh, it was a former mine uh, producing in the 80s and was closed in 19, uh, about 1989 because of the price of gold. Uh, and uh, what are the average grades there? Well, obviously right now we're in the mid-six, six-and-a-half grams, but that includes development ore. So the life of mine is just over seven grams, and the the resource is uh, about 200,000 ounces, plus or minus. So we've we've basically replaced uh, to date what we've mined, uh, but obviously with uh, five drills going uh, at Bachelor, we're expecting uh, the resource numbers to move up. Wow, five drills. And I think, uh, what are your projected production for this year, Ron? Okay, for uh, the calendar year, because our year end is June, right. uh, but going for January to December, obviously uh, we're ramping up. We're not at full production, which would be uh, close to 5,000 ounces per month, but we've demonstrated that we can get very close to the, those theoretical numbers. I mean, we announced 4,500 and change. Mm-hmm. You, divide, you divide by seven, uh, and not the, not the one of the a jury. When we announced 4,500, we did have one week with 1,193 ounces, mm-hmm. so you Divide by seven, multiply by thirty, you end up with five thousand one hundred thirteen. So the theoretical is in sight. We're not there yet, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, obviously, I think for calendar, we'll be we'll just say in excess of fifty thousand to make sure that uh, we're on the conservative side. We'd like to over deliver, but we're during the spring of two fourteen, we will get very close to that five thousand on a consistent basis. All so right, so that. so you've got two hundred thousand ounces there, and you're producing fifty thousand a year, roughly. So that's a four year mine life, but you. As you said, you have four drills turning right there now. So you five. have the five at, uh, at Bachelor. So you have um, uh, so you have the potential to expand that resource. You know, Ron, it's not uncommon for underground mines a lot of times to only have a couple of years ahead, and they keep on following the the structure and keep on mining. But you already have four years or so. Uh, is, is there a chance of increasing the um, the production from that mine on an annual basis? Oh, definitely, definitely. But there was a point you said too. Is that in the you know in the bit to be a lot of the mines which are still running 25 years later only had about a two year mine life uh-huh. when they started, so you're absolutely correct. So once you find the mine and uh, one, uh, Serge Roy, my partner's uh, father, who's passed away, was a prospector, and he says it's you know once you find the mine, it's it's then it's hard to kill. And uh, we found the mine. It's open at depth. It's open in all directions. Uh, an old analyst of the firm uh, of, uh, of Metanor once said, uh, back in the envelope calculations of 700,000, if he sees the data we're producing now, I think he'd, he'd really do a higher back of the envelope. We believe there's a lot more gold there. Uh, going to Ufren is actually, when you're going towards Ufren, you're going towards the old Coniagus mine. And you know, Jay, uh, where do you find a new mine between two existing mines? So Coniagus is an old mine, 
polymetallic with gold, and Bachelor is a gold mine. So, and Hufrin is right in the middle. So, all a lot of the drill holes are headed that way uh, uh, towards Hufrin, and we've been hitting, so expanding the resource, and we still haven't turned the drills down. And they're, you know, we're at 2,400 feet, and the structure's at 35. So, I think the where the the future bodes very well. Uh, there's great geology. The Abitsubi is on our side. Uh, so we believe there's a lot more gold, and we believe with all these drills turning, we're going to really uh, get the uh, resource going in the right direction. Well, Ron, let me ask you, what do you figure your cash cost of production uh, will be at 50,000 ounces? Do you have okay, a... Okay, we've only been giving guidance uh, on uh, cash cost, so we'll just stay lead there. We target at, when we're at full production, uh, around 5,000 ounces per month, we feel that we could be around $800 cash mm-hmm. cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are presently redoing all our financial statements because we declared commercial production based on our criteria was at least 80% of the capacity of our mill. And, you know, we wanted to be conservative. So we only declared it in November, effective December 1st. So December 1st, which is included in the quarter December 31st, which will be published before the end of February, we'll have one month of production. So our trial balance, everything was capitalized. Now we have a full, uh, full-blown full P&L. So we'll get all that out to, uh, to the readers. But that's, again, in one month, so it's not, it's not, but we'll have our first full quarter will be January to March. So as again, uh, in summary, 800, and there's a chance that could be 800 Canadian. So as you know, we're selling our gold, and uh, we love watching this the gold rally, but the dollar is getting weak, and we're getting $140 pure exchange profit per ounce because we sell in Canadian dollars. Exactly, Ron, and I think you mentioned been selling, getting about $1,400 Canadian, and so 1400 minus 800, that's a $600 profit margin on 50,000 ounces, so people can do sort of a back of the envelope to see what sort of operating cash flow may be coming from the uh, from the bachelor mine now Ron, you also have another exciting prospect and one that i've followed in the past you know before the gold sector really took a hit and started down uh, metanor was doing quite well its share price was up a lot higher than it is right now but that is the uh, the berry mine and uh, where, where is the berry mine located relative to the bachelor mine so it's over 100 kilometers um, away by by road uh, and uh, you know we had uh, at one point it was going to be about 130, but we put we put it we installed the bridge back in the back in the day, and you know again we're entrepreneurs. Uh, we we paid for it uh, for 125, and uh, consultants said it's going to cost 500. So we're we're very much on the cost conscious and looking at entrepreneurship. But the Barry has about 780,000 ounces, all categories. Mm. Great average grade about 1.3. Uh, it's Yeah, 1.3 grams per ton, right, Ron? On the average, on the average, blended between the uh, between the uh, indicated and inferred. So, say an average of about 1.3, but it's it's 18. 18 million tons, and you know how much it was, Jay, when we were uh, transporting it. It was about $20, $22 with snow removal per ton. Uh, you know, with 18 million tons, I want the contract for uh, for trucking. I mean, it's yeah. it's, it's a lot of money. So it, it it bodes well for as we, and we are, uh, I mean, the, your listeners should know that we are drilling at Barry as well with two drills. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a 15,000-meter uh, project uh, drilling uh, at Barry right now underway. So you know, but it's pure exploration. We're not allowed to drill 
at the pit because that is a mine. It was in production, so that's not eligible for flow through. So we're at the extremities uh, near Eagle Hill and in other areas where we have some, we have 150 anomalies on that. So we are drilling Barry, so we put the asset back in play. It's not uh, on the shelf. So we have one mine in production, uh, our permitted bachelor, and we have our permitted uh, Barry uh, mine uh, in, in, in pure export. Hey, Ron, I lost you there. You had you had just finished. You just talked about. So we have one mine in full production. Okay, we have the Bachelor mine in full production, and we have our Barry mine in exploration. So it's back in play. We've uh, we've got the you know the two drills going, targeting anomalies. Uh, there's a lot of uh, activity. One uh, one of the anomalies is near Eagle Hill, so we're uh, going there, and they they've got a good drill program going on. So there's a lot of activity around Barry, and uh, you know obviously we believe in it, and it leads to. Uh, obviously, if you get the resource up, it leads to potentially putting a uh, on-site mill. The SGS Geostat said that with uh, you know with a larger tonnage, a lower grade, with an on-site mill, Barry has the potential to become a significant low-grade, high tonnage deposit, similar to a Cisco and Detour. Mm-hmm. The gold is in the system. The mineralized fluids have circulated in the major shear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I repeat that. That's written by Geostat. So we've got something great, and you know, obviously. You know, we can truck that, uh, if we did do a concentrate, we could truck it to the bachelor right. mill. And we do, in summary, at the bachelor mill, we have the foresight to already uh, look at an expansion. We're waiting for the electricity. So sometime in 2015, we feel we'll be able to increase the, the mill capacity from 800 tons per day to almost 1,200 tons per day. Mm-hmm. When we're running battery ore, it is a 1,200 ton per day because the ore is softer. And when we run bachelor ore, we can only go 800. And that's what we told the street from the beginning when we started the, at, uh, in 2010 talking about bachelor. Uh, and we are getting towards that theoretical. So for a measly 3 to $4 million, we can almost go 50% increased production. So that'll be the, that's something that we have planned and uh, we'll be ready. Uh, the upgrade will be there, and you know we're very good at construction. We've say, you know, we sank the we sank the shaft on time on budget, and we've done numerous upgrades in the mill from 450 short, 700 metric, 800 metric, and 1200 metric when we were doing the Barry mine. So we're yeah. very good at construction. So I think this is what what I what I find very exciting about this company is first of all, uh, you now are in production, and I believe, Ron, based on the, the numbers you just gave me should be cash flow positive, and you should be able to build that bachelor mine, build it up, and continue it and, and increase production there without having to issue more shares, without having to borrow money, right? Yeah, no, that's that's the intent, Jay. The only thing is, like uh, when I was on BNN, uh, Andrew, the uh, the interviewer said too, if five million dollars to six million dollars is not a lot of money to have in the bank at the, uh, you know, uh, for a small company no. in mining. So we're managing ourselves. We're doing the best we can, and we're trying to avoid issuing uh, shares. I mean, some warrants just uh, uh, fell off at Christmas in January, so eleven, eleven, over eleven million warrants just uh, disappeared. So we've been managing our fully diluted quite well. Now there's no dilution except for our options, which are all extremely out of the money. Right. Well, the thing, again, what I would like to just mention to my listeners and why I've liked this stock so much is that you've got Bachelor, which is should be cash flow positive now, should generate, and then you can, with that cash, hopefully grow the company, not only at Bachelor, but also explore and develop at Barry, and there you have the potential for something really large, uh, low-grade surface, because that's an open pit deposit there, uh, the potential to expand that laterally, you're doing flow-through financing rather than drilling around the, the 
existing mine. Uh, and so I think it's very exciting because if the market starts to see a multiple million ounce deposit there at, at Barry on top of the cash flow positive bachelor, then I think, uh, I, you know, this is a 15 to 20 cent stock right now. I, I have no trouble seeing this kind of a stock uh, if you execute and are, are successful, Ron. I have no problem seeing a dollar to two dollars with this company in the not too distant future. And, and I would say that's why I find this kind of company has the leverage to really uh, increase the appreciation uh, in, in the share price more than, say, the big, the big guys, the guys that are the household name companies that are so large are producing a half a million to a million ounces a year. They can't grow percentage wise like you can. Well, I, I I tend to concur. There's a big big potential upside as long as we uh, you know as long as we execute. Well, I, I think it's a very very compelling story. Is there anything else, Ron, you'd like to add before we conclude our discussion today? Well, I guess just in, you know in summary, we're located in Canada. It's very mining friendly in Quebec. Uh, obviously, uh, you know. Uh, it's it's uh, Quebec is com- coming back and coming back into favor with the recent uh, you know uh, bid for uh, Osisco by Goldcorp. You know we are. Not subject to the price of oil, we are powered by very low hydro, and it's all compressed air. Yeah. So we have great working conditions for our for our employees. They're non-unionized, so basically, with four groups, uh, four teams, we run 24/7. They have great working conditions. They run, they work seven days in, seven days out. They don't have to fly in, fly out. They can drive. If there's mm-hmm. a family emergency, two and a half hours, they're back into Valdor. And yeah. we're fully permitted, and we have another mine that's fully permitted called Barry. So we've got, uh, you know, we're we're driving the uh, the uh, the ramp up, and we're driving the exploration with seven drills on all our property. So uh, you know, it's it's a fantastic place to be. Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more, and especially now as the sun is starting to shine just a little bit more brightly uh, on the gold mining industry with the gold price and the shares starting to show some improvement here in 2014. It looks to me like things are, are really starting to turn in favor of Metanor as well as a lot of the other companies. But I want to thank you very much, Ron, for being with us today, and uh, I hope to talk to you again sometime in the not-too-distant future. Thanks for having me, Jake. Absolutely. Well, folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with one of the top technical analysts in the country, a guy who isn't all that well-known because he's been quietly consulting for some of the major names on Wall Street. I'm talking about Michael Oliver, who will be on this show for a second time as soon as we come back from the commercial break. So don't go away. I'll be right back with Michael Oliver. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Attention mining investors. Brazil Resources Incorporated, trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV, is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil, surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000-ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil, led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. 
As the bull market in gold resumes, gold shares will explode to much higher levels, and those companies that are ramping up production will take off first. Metanor Resources, symbol MTO in Canada and MEAOF in the U.S., is now in commercial production and producing over 4,500 ounces of gold per month from its bachelor mine in Quebec. With seven drills turning, I look for the company's gold resource to grow dramatically on both its bachelor and berry projects. I believe Metanor now offers major upside potential for savvy investors. listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again, uh, J. Michael Oliver. We'll call him Michael for short. Uh, Michael uh, entered the financial service industries in 1975 on the futures side, joining E.F. Hutton's International Commodity Division. Uh, that was in New York City, and he studied under David Johnson, head of Hutton's uh, Commodity Division and chairman of the COMEX. In, 19, uh, in the 1980s, Michael began to develop his own momentum-based method of technical, uh, technical analysis. And in 1987, along with his futures client accounts, um, uh, he, using technical, using his methods, to, uh, was able to capture the crash before it happened. And Oliver began to realize that his uh, eminent, uh, that his emergent momentum structure-based tools uh, really had some potential to take uh, to be taken further, and that's what he's done now. And he's also uh, been invited to go to work for Wachovia. He uh, he has other clients on Wall Street. Really, not a retail analyst. Uh, really involved with uh, with Wall Street institutions, uh, and has very quietly gone about his business. I mean, I only recently learned about about Michael, uh, and I'm very pleased that I did because I think he has an awful lot to offer. Uh, not just uh, in the markets and technical tools, but also, I think, intellectually in terms of helping us understand where we need to go as a country, where we need to go as individuals to get along and to make a better life for ourselves. And that's one of the things I want to talk to him today about is his book that he's written, The New Libertarianism, Anarcho-Capitalism, and we want to just touch on that and talk to him a little bit about that uh, and let you know where you can pick up a copy of it as well. Welcome, Michael. It's really good to have you back again. Jay, thanks for having me. It's really great to have you. Um, I want to get your views on the markets, that's for sure. Uh, Those that are most important to me, and presumably the folks that listen to this show would be probably the gold markets and the equity markets. Um, But I'd also like to uh, talk a little bit about your book, uh, because I think it it provides an excellent overview of the logic behind free markets and objectivism as taught by Ayn Rand, and also uh, sort of helps to it helps us to understand that there's no reason to have divisions between uh, people that are objectivists and libertarians. That basically, the the big picture, the big there's a tent that's big enough to capture all of us who understand that we need to be free as individuals. That the government should not restrict our ability to be who we are, to to use our skills and talents uh, to earn a living and take care of ourselves. Right? Correct. Absolutely. Now, I want if you could just perhaps define for our listeners. I mean, a lot of people have read Ayn Rand's book, Atlas Shrugged. I mean, it's just, I think it's a must-read for everybody. But uh, could you just perhaps 
describe, define objectivism? What in one? How, how would you define that? Ayn Rand did that standard on one leg in one sentence. I forget the sentence, but it was more like uh, the world is an objective absolute. It's uh, knowable. It exists independent of our consciousness. Our consciousness can know the real world. Um, the man's chief attribute uh, of survival and of enjoying life is his volitional consciousness. And anything and those, we we shift now from man to uh, and ethics to politics. Anything that gets in the way of his uh, free use of his volitional consciousness is a threat to man, and that mm-hmm. is a political statement, um, mm-hmm. because statism or states in uh, varying degrees interfere with your exercise of your volitional consciousness, hence mm-hmm. interfere with your ability to survive and to enjoy your life. Mm-hmm. Um, they, in order to do that, they aggress against you, uh, meaning they threaten or use physical force to halt you from certain activities that... Uh, are not, in most cases, a threat to other people, but are means of uh, them organizing society and some ideal that they think is more important than your exercise of your volitional consciousness. And that, mm-hmm. in the uh, summary, would be a defense of libertarianism right there. And that I Yeah, think so, is, go ahead. Yeah, Ayn Rand, though, there was a personality problem back then, and uh, Rand had many personal attributes that uh, people then and since didn't like uh, personality mm-hmm. traits and so forth. Some called her a cultist and so forth, which I don't, I don't agree with, but uh, she's been seen that way. Uh, Murray Rothbard, who was a libertarian economist, uh, was with Rand briefly in the 50s, part of her inner group, and he was basically what we now regard as the father of modern libertarian movement. Mm-hmm. He was a student of von Mises. And the two of them were together briefly, but then they broke apart on a personality basis. I think it had something to do with religion, primarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rothbard's wife being, I think, religious, and Ayn Rand didn't approve, and so forth. And so that, that was a personality split there between two of the leading minds that have, through their work, generated what we now see as the modern libertarian movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of the personality antagonisms on both sides, uh, the orthodox objectivists today, for example, uh, still despise the libertarians. Ayn Rand called libertarians hippies. Uh, <laughs> and that was a rather cursory view on her part and, and inaccurate. Uh, I overlooked that as a, uh, I was editor of a possibly the first objectivist periodical in the country that was also slash anarcho-capitalist. Uh-huh. Because Ayn Rand, of course, was an ardent limited government advocate. And yes. basically it, basically, she really didn't do much but accept the tenets of the Founding Fathers. Mm-hmm. And that was basically her politics. I really don't think she reasoned her way through political philosophy. I think she reasoned very well from basic philosophical principles up through the point where politics emerges as, mm-hmm. as a, a, a part of philosophy. And at that point, she defaulted to the Founding Fathers. Mm-hmm. Well, back in the heyday of the original days of the what we now have the second wave of libertarianism. The first wave was in the late 60s, early 70s, and I was fortunate to be there. There were probably mm-hmm. probably 100 or 200 real hardcore intellectual activists in the emergent anarcho-capitalist movement back then, Rothbard being preeminent, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, I ran a newspaper called The New Banner, uh, and I, through that I met Rothbard, interviewed him in the paper, uh, corresponded with him, and wrote an article for his publication later. But I never had a problem with this antagonism between the objectivist core basic philosophical beliefs and the politics of libertarianism. Mm -hmm. Uh, But on both sides of that issue back then, and still to some extent now, 
you have people on both sides who hate each other. No. Uh, I, I recently moved from Colorado, for example, and I, I inquired into an objectivist group out there, uh, University of Colorado in Boulder. And as soon as they found out I was a libertarian, they said, well, you, you probably best not come. Really? <laughs> this is, That's this too bad. is 40 years later, and it still no. persists. But no. there's some very good signs out there. And I, I thought about this before I composed my mind for this uh, interview today, that there's a very interesting factoid, or four of them, in fact, anecdotal evidence that the marriage of the ideas of Ayn Rand, which I deal with in the book, and that of libertarianism is a natural fit, despite the antagonism between those two historic individuals. And the simple way to, to demonstrate it anecdotally is four names. Let's see, Rick Santelli, mm-hmm. who was the, the, you know, the father of the term, the Tea Party. Absolutely. Fe- February 2009, he had his rant on CNBC. Uh-huh. And he... I've been watching him for years on CNBC, and mm-hmm. anytime he mentions anything political or philosophical, it's always Ayn Rand. Uh-huh. So he's an objectivist, I have no doubt, and he's libertarian in his politics. Yes. So there's no conflict in his mind about the two being married up. Uh, then the, uh, another one is Ted Cruz. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read, and I expect it's true, that, that as a teenager in Texas, he read the works of Ayn Rand and von Mises, von mm-hmm. Mises being the father of the Austrian school and the mentor of Murray Rothbard. Sure. Here you have a kid who, in his teen years, now in, in the Senate, is a marriage of these two supposedly, but not really, divergent forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one is the senator from uh, Minnesota, Johnson. Mm-hmm. Ron Johnson, I think his name. Uh, during his campaign for the Senate, he quoted Atlas Shrugged frequently. Mm-hmm. Now that's a, that's a, a gutsy thing for a politician to do. Sure. He won by an enormous landslide. Sure. Uh, and then last but not least is Rand Paul. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a videotape, and I'm sure your listeners would like to check this out. Go to YouTube, type in Rand Paul and Ayn Rand and the name. The issue of the video is Rand Paul discussing the issue is my name Rand have anything to do with Ayn Rand. Uh-huh. It does not. His name is Randall. And uh-huh. that's, it's as simple as that. But he discusses in there... While in Dr. Garb, because he's an ophthalmologist, you know, this was mm-hmm. uh, back in May 2009, so prior to his senatorial campaign, he discusses casually and openly the two most influential people intellectually in his life, other than his father, and it's Ayn Rand and Murray Rothbard. Mm-hmm. He never met Rand, but he did meet Rothbard once because of his father. Uh, again, here we have four Tea Party people who are preeminent and who are both in their minds, there was no division between objectivism and Ayn Rand and libertarian political concepts. Mm-hmm. That's, well, that's I think, a very good thing. Yeah, I, I agree with you, and I, I might just put in a plug for the New York City Junto that's held here uh, every the first Thursday of every month. And unfortunately, um, uh, Michael, you're in St. Louis and can't come to these events, but uh, Gene Epstein, who will be on my show next week, who, who writes for Barron's, is, uh, is a libertarian. And he heads that up. It's an objectivist group. It's uh, many disciples of Ayn Rand, but also libertarians. And, and the, it's a, it's a, I think it's a, a group that gets along quite well. So I hear what you're saying, and I, I think that's a good thing because if we, uh, you know, clearly there has to be some room for individuals to do their own thinking and can't just simply follow one line of thought. Um, uh, you know, we have to be free to think, I, I believe. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a great thing, though, because... Uh, in history, if you think about it, 
major changes in history. And, for instance, we've just gone through 100 years of Marxism throughout the world in various forms, uh, originate with intellectuals. Uh, and I don't mean to be elitist about it, but the mind thinks first, the body moves sure. second. And sure. here you have Marx and Engels back in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, and 90s coming up with their ideas, writing their treatises, conflicting with Bakunin, who assessed them properly at the time. But sure enough, in the early 1900s come the foot soldiers of their ideas, and reality changes. Mm -hmm. uh, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, and so forth. And, and Western variants of that view. Uh, they change reality because of these ideas. Now, of course, we know the ideas were decrepit, and therefore the results were decrepit. But sure. still, ideas do precede action. So a lot mm -hmm. of the uh, modern political press, including some supposedly astute political observers, uh, misapprehend what the Tea Party is all about. Some of them would like to dismiss it as a ragtag of uh, conservative old GOP guys who don't like government anymore and, and coupled with religious right and so forth and so on. And, and while those elements may be involved in the Tea Party movement, this movement is highly intellectual. It has a solid intellectual base. It is not some knee-jerk anti-government movement. It has a philosophy as to why it does not trust the state uh, to varying degrees. And it is a real threat intellectually and therefore lastingly to philosophy, the various philosophies of statism. And I think that's why, for example, the other day, the New York Times ran a big article on the intellectual roots of Rand Paul, mm -hmm. uh, somewhat dismissive of him, but they, they, they covered it fairly well and fairly accurately with a few odd statements made here and there. But they know the enemy, and the enemy is here, and it is not shallow. Uh, this is a real philosophical revolution, mm -hmm. and you can thank those two individuals who no longer here. Uh, Rothbard died in 95, as I recall. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, they have changed history, in my view. Mm -hmm. And now the foot soldiers, we, we know their names, and uh, they're having an effect. Yeah. And I think it's a very positive trend. I'm very optimistic and realistic at the same time. Yeah. Well, it certainly uh, it certainly is encouraging, I believe, uh, Michael. I just uh, I think, though, we may be in for some very difficult times between here and there, though. Well, some of them maybe you should relish in. Uh, for example, economic bad times. Uh, to some extent, uh -huh. you have to pay the dues, and I don't mean you didn't cause it, but mm -hmm. whoever caused it, the, the events are in progress or have been in progress and have consequences. And the consequences, the Federal Reserve has tried to stave off, to delay, to deny. But the realities are still there, and I still think there's dues to be paid. Uh, that becomes an issue of technical, <laughs> not a, a fundamental issue. Yeah. Uh, there may be fundamental realities out there that will bear bear a new trend, but uh, then it always becomes an issue of technical timing. That's one thing I've learned that, unfortunately, a lot of gold bugs haven't learned. Uh, it's also true with what I would term equity bugs. There's a heck of a lot of equity bugs out there who are always bullish on stocks, just like the gold bugs are always bullish on gold. There is a technical reality underneath the fundamentals, and sometimes it, it is more dominant. Uh, in particular, uh, this is why I'm a technician, by the way. I got in the business sure. as a gold fundamentalist, but sure. uh, I learned very soon after getting in the business that uh, you can be right on an argument. The issue is when. Exactly. And, and, and oh, that don't, is don't I know almost that. as important as being right on the argument. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Not more important. Uh, yeah. Timing is everything, it's been yes, said. it is. Yeah. 
Well, it's very interesting. Um, you know, we, over the weekend, I was privileged to meet up with somebody who works for the Lindsay Group, and uh, he was. Uh, you mentioned the Federal Reserve has had their hundred years now. Uh, his thinking is that we could be not all that far from the end, or before the Federal Reserve is going to have to pay its dues for all the damage it's created. Do you think that's possible? Restrained or or abolished, that's possible. I suspect that's a political issue, and it depends on the off-year election. And the trend in the next election is to whether... uh, It's not an issue I don't think you can measure right now, I'm talking politically. Uh, I think the economic and market trends will have a lot to do with the outcome of the next two elections, the off-year mm-hmm. and the regular. And if we relapse into another down, uh, which I suspect we will, and I base that on my macro-technical view of the stock market, which mm-hmm. I think is the large, the, practically the only beneficiary of Federal Reserve policy, um, that if that relapses, that the belief structure underneath the Fed, uh, among the public, among asset managers in particular, will evaporate. And... It's like any loss of any belief structure. Uh, chaos ensues, mental chaos. And, mm-hmm. and I think if we relapse, and it doesn't have to be a crash, it just has to be this wasn't real, this is the real way. And if uh, at the end of this year we find out last year is gone, and I think mm-hmm. the technical prospects of that are pretty high. Mm-hmm. In other words, we're back in the 1400s, which is where we started last year. Mm-hmm. It will suddenly dawn on people, including the people who should have known better who have been around for 40 years and still haven't learned, that the goosing of the market by the Fed uh, was all very nice and well for those people who are in the market, and that's a narrow few, of course, we know, right. uh, like the 1%, so to speak, who obviously have something to... They should be erecting statues to Bernanke in their front yard. Uh, <laughs> that, Other than them, it's going to be a, uh, a sense of emotional relapse, I think, among investors, mm-hmm. asset managers, and the general public, because after mm-hmm. all the of the numbers, something like 50 to 60 some odd percent of the public has consistently, over the last several years, if they're asked the question, are we in a recession or not, as far as your personal life is concerned, have answered in the affirmative. Yes. And so, you know, those folks, unfortunately, are going to suffer a lot as well. And I don't know how well the populace as a whole can take another relapse. But the, the issue then, you raised the question about the Fed. Uh, the Fed is a belief structure. It's the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. And Absolutely. if that curtain gets pulled open and they realize it was all just a temporary joke, right. uh, people are going to have to rethink reality. Right. And, that's uh, going to be yeah, a very bad joke for most people. Well, that could affect the elections, and that's a right. variable that's not come into play yet. Right, right, right. Well, it's it's certainly true. I mean, uh, I, I think there's nothing more important in terms of the psychology of the of the country because it's always out there. The propaganda machine has always got the, uh, you know, the closing on the Dow and all this out there. If people are really thinking in those terms, in terms of the trickle down, that's a part of the idea, I guess, too. It's probably all to do with uh, animal spirits, as Keynes like to call it. Right? I mean, it doesn't matter what your balance sheet is like as long as you as long as you're happy and you. But, but this um, trickle down didn't work. This trickle down stayed narrow, and uh, it has not trickled down. And that's, no. to some extent, a, a, a positive statement for businessmen, corporations that have held tight to their balance sheets and so forth. Instead of becoming believers again in yes. a new boom, they have held back, not employed yes. vastly, not expanded their factory capability and so forth, not gotten diluted by false numbers of, right. oh, it's growing. Yeah, the money supply is growing, so all those other numbers should be growing equivalently. Right. Uh, so they're distorted. And fortunately, American businesses have held back. I'm of the opinion 
that the next down you will not see the warning indications in so-called domestic U.S. corporate fundamentals like balance sheets, earnings, and things of that sort, that it's likely to come from elsewhere. I suspect largely from government debt problems, not just here but elsewhere, especially mm-hmm. the first emerging market debt and so forth, and that the, uh, the black swan, which never really is a black swan because some people see it coming, um, will come, and it will probably come from offshore. And that, uh, in fact, over the last few weeks, that, that's become a realization, I think, that the uh, emerging markets, in fact, we can get into that a little later if you want on emerging markets and their debt, debt situation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to do that actually, uh, Michael. Now, in fact, if we'd, you, I know, have done your work is really involved more, less on prices and more on on what you see as momentum, changing momentum uh, within the markets that give you an early heads up on on the direction of things. And um, you know, you noted that most people are going to be watching the S and P and the Dow and so forth, the big indexes. But in fact, uh, you have sort of highlighted Turkey and some of the other emerging markets as the as the places where the so-called black swans may be coming from. As you say, they're not really black swans. I like, to, you know, really going back to the last couple of major bubbles that popped: the dot com bubble, the housing bubble. There were always people out there, primarily people of the Austrian school of economics, that understood and were foretelling it was going. Going to happen. They could see the problems were building. They knew it was going to happen. If not when, at least the fundamentalists knew that things were wrong. Your technical analysis, your momentum analysis allows you to sort of see, uh, and I believe, Michael, what makes you so valuable to your clients is this ability to see a little ahead of the, of the market where things are going. So what are you seeing now on the S&P 500? Because you, you wrote fairly extensively about it last weekend. What, what are you seeing in the S&P 500 now? And then maybe if you could comment a little bit on some of these outliers, these uh, Turkeys or Brazils or some of these emerging markets, and, and what are you seeing there? Well, before the year began, it looked to me like, um, first off, we had an unusual year the last two years. Um, I measure things differently. Again, let me restate that. And I never allow, by the way, my philosophical views to ever interfere with my sense of timing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I'm two different people, okay? Uh, I may be right on the long term on a fundamental, but I never allow that to get in my technical work. Good. But in the S&P... Last year and the year before, in other words, when we started 2012, we went straight up, day one, hour one of the new year, and never traded down in the year. Mm-hmm. 2013, we opened where we closed December of 2012, went straight up, never traded down on the year. In history of the S&P 500, uh, that was a very rare occasion. There's only uh, there are many years in which you never trade down on the year, one year in a row, but two years in a row is exceptional. It was indicative of the exuberance out there. Mm-hmm. We started this year and didn't even trade up on the year. Mm-hmm. So we broke the model. We finally did trade up on the year for about one brief minute, and that was it. That was at 1850, which is like a half point beyond the high of last year. And since then, it's been down. Uh, uh-huh. No big deal. No big deal. We've had a lot of corrections in the last five years of bull trend, and that's another major technical factor. Uh, my studies have shown in 100 years of stock history, using the Dow and the S&P, if you age a bull trend into the fourth year, especially about four and a half years, you have an old trend. There are very few that last that long. Uh, two of them lasted five years and one month. That was 1929, 1987. The consequences in both was disastrous. Mm-hmm. The third longest up until now was 2007 peak, and its consequences were not very good either. We've now aged past the 2007, and assuming we've seen the top, let's just assume that for argument's sake, we were four years and nine months old. No, excuse me, 4.9 years old, Mm -hmm. almost five years. Had we gone to the end of January 
with new highs. That would have been a full five years, counting from the February closing low in 2009, which is the low monthly close. So we're very old. That is a negative. I believe that any set of fundamentals, rolling dynamic fundamentals, will tend to price itself in any given market in that span of time, such that even if the fundamentals that you think are in play driving that market are still operant, it doesn't matter because the market will likely fully priced it and more likely overpriced it. So mm -hmm. even the things you think are true, yeah, they're already in the market. Mm -hmm. So the issue then becomes some minor little nuisance point, some little fundamental that nobody seems to care about that suddenly becomes larger and larger and, and uh, like a, a explosion of a star suddenly becomes something really important. This would be right. like the mortgage-backed securities in 2008, right? Uh, you know, et cetera. So right. there's no doubt something or many things out there that can do that, and I'm always scouring the bushes looking for them. Uh, but mm -hmm. As far as the S&P goes, I'll provide you with two numbers that I think if you see them, you have, one, probably seen the top, and two, you're probably beginning a bear market. Now, that doesn't mean you have to crash. Uh, it doesn't mean anything of the sort. It means you're likely headed down. So from an investor's point of view, if I saw these two numbers, no matter what your belief structure, whether you believe the Fed can do this forever or whatever, 1705 to 1685, that's a 20-point band. Mm -hmm. So far, the low has been 1772 this week. So uh, a single set of percentages lower, if you see those numbers during February or any time this quarter, I would mm -hmm. operate on the assumption we are entering a bear market. Mm -hmm. uh, again, then the issue becomes speed and so forth. Uh, right. I, think, I think if we trigger those numbers, I will then go from an intermediate bear right now, meaning I think that we're in a corrective phase, uh, which does not necessarily entail deep dimensions. But if we get to those numbers... I then shift to a bear on longer-term duration. Okay, Michael. Unfortunately, my engineer is telling me we only have one minute left. We haven't even talked about gold. Oh. Uh, 30 seconds. What Real, about the gold markets? Real fast. Gold may have made its lows. I have my suspicions. I'm most suspicious of silver. I think the bear market in total in terms of time is probably nearly over. It might be over. I would... If I were a gold bull, I would wish for one more slam dunk, another fifty or hundred dollars below that recent set of lows at eleven eighty area. Because uh, if you can do that and then you flip back up, you've probably then seen the low. I'm still uh, on the fence as far as whether that low is the low, but I do think we're close to the low, time wise okay. and probably price wise. Okay, Michael, we're going to have to have you back again very soon Good. again. Uh, there's just so much more to talk to you about. Thank you very much for being with us, Thank and you, uh, we'll look to talk to you again sometime very soon. Folks, go to Jay Taylor Media to listen to Dan Oliver, who's turned extremely bullish on gold and gold shares. So it's jtaylormedia.com uh, for Dan Oliver coming up immediately after the break. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.